0: This is a Squiz podcast, where your shortcut to being informed. Hello and welcome to Ask the Squiz, our weekend stroll through the burning questions that squizzes have about the 2022 election. I'm Larissa Moore. And
1: I'm Claire Kimball
0: been another short week, Claire, but we are officially halfway through the election campaign.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering whether we've got a cheer or a celebration (laughs) sound effect to play. (laughs) Survival, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, with Easter and the school holidays and Anzac Day it's been a bit disrupted, but like all good things, the time is flying. It sure is whizzing past. If you are in Queensland
0: or the Northern Territory, you get the Labor Day public holiday on Monday, so you're still a little bit disrupted there. But what hasn't been disrupted are the excellent questions that squizzes are sending through about the election. So we're going to jump into it now first question is from Stacey. She's wondering how effective the smear campaigns are in winning votes and she's wondering why it's open season in politics when it comes to slagging off your opposition in a way that really just doesn't apply to anyone else.
1: Yeah those hard-hitting negative campaigns, the smear campaigns is the term Stacey used or scare campaigns, uh, they're a feature of almost every election in Australia and in other democracies like Australia around the, world. And the simple answer is that they work mm. if they didn't work they wouldn't yeah. do them uh, advertising is expensive and campaign performance is something that they monitor very very closely and larissa you can tell us a bit more about it because your day job with the Squiz is our digital and growth director and you looked after social media in politics in the past
0: Yeah, well, it's all about cut through at the end of the day with digital campaigns. And especially on social, you've basically got half a second or so, maybe a bit longer to grab someone's attention as they're scrolling past. It's a whole lot easier and quicker to point to the other guy and say, you're lying, you're wrong or fail than it is to spell out your own achievements and draw people in that way. Once you've set that up and it's working a little, you just put that budget behind it and let it run.
1: Yeah, and probably the biggest scare campaign of our time uh, to point to was Labor's medicare campaign in the 2016 mm. election campaign. It was the message that Medicare was at risk of privatisation under the coalition. And Malcolm Turnbull, who was Prime Minister at the time, went on to win the election, but he took a significant hit and he put that down to that medicare campaign being very effective, even though he stood up and said over and over and over again that it was a lie. Um, There's a reason why it was effective as a campaign. It was everywhere. Mm -hmm. And in that 2016 campaign, 75% of Labor's total estimated advertising spend was on negative ads. 75% of the ad budget is
0: a lot, but if it's being effective, that's where you put your money. Stacey also goes on to ask
1: how the political parties can get away with telling lies about each other in their ads. It's a good question. Consumer law in Australia is that businesses are not allowed to make statements that are incorrect or statements that are likely to create a false impression. That is not the case with political (laughs) ads. There's no truth in advertising requirements for an election campaign. Uh, And there's a couple of practical reasons for that. There's a fear that opinions could be captured by the law. So a candidate standing up and saying what they believe doesn't necessarily mean to be that what they're saying is true so there's issues with that Um, also the need to put legal advice across ads that the campaigns might want to run could be impractical given the campaigns run very very quickly and they turn around those ads very Mm. quickly
0: yeah it can be a bit of a minefield out there it's a good reminder to be critical about what you see uh, coming up in your social feeds or out there on billboards and on the tv Now, Virginia has emailed us. She says the parties make billions of dollars of promises during the campaigns. And she wants to know, is there any official requirement for them to deliver on these promises if they win the election? Or
1: is it up to the public to remember broken promises at the next election? Yeah, I like the idea that there would be an official requirement for our <laughs> yeah. politicians to deliver. I'm sort of imagining some kind of promise jail where they go yeah. if they don't do what they say they were going to do. And maybe you can get bail if you really promise hard that you've got to follow through this time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Virginia, what we're going through now is when and how politicians yeah. make sure that they're accountable, that they've delivered on their promises. Uh, an election is the ultimate accountability measure. Um The idea being that they lose government or as a local MP, they lose their job if they haven't done what they said that they were going to do. And in this campaign, Labor has gone after the Morrison government for not delivering an integrity commission in the last term of government. So we hear a lot from the other parties about what the government's done, what their performance has been, whether they've actually done what they said they would do. So stay listening and reading and sleuthing on the promises that mattered to you last campaign.
0: Yeah, if only there was an impartial performance review at the end of term that ticked these things off. But as you say, the ultimate performance review of an election is happening now. So make sure you follow up on what was important to you. Catherine is interested in the leaders' debates. And look, it's safe to say she's not a fan of Sky News, which is where the last one was held. She wanted to know why the only debate of the campaign so far wasn't on the ABC, the People's Broadcaster.
1: So that People's Forum on Sky News that Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese took part in about a week and a bit ago is a very specific format to Sky News. They get 100 undecided voters in and they ask the questions and then they vote at the end on the winner. It's a pretty cool format. Um, Catherine's point, though, about having debates that are accessible to all Australians and not just those with a Foxtel subscription is fair. Um, Channel 7 and 9 have pitched for a debate each. Uh, 7 wants the 5th of May, so that's Thursday next week, and 9 wants Sunday the 8th of May. Scott Morrison has said yes to both of those, and Anthony Albanese is yet to respond. The ABC has also proposed a debate on the 9th of May, and no one has committed to that one yet.
0: May 5, May 8, maybe May 9, they're pretty bang-bang. Why are they all so clustered together?
1: It's because early voting opens on the 9th of May and a record number of votes are expected to be cast early this time around. So they really want to make their pitches before those polls open.
0: Do they coordinate these things? they kind of, the whole process seems a bit
1: unorganised. Yeah, it's a bit helter skelter isn't it? <laughs> uh, we don't have a debates commission like other countries and those sort of commissions coordinate the debates usually in a campaign. Um, so the media outlets are making their own pitches and then it's up to the leaders to agree or to opt out.
0: There's a bit to look out for in the coming days to see if those debates do come off. Claire, Helen is wondering if there's any preference deals being done. For example, do we know where green preferences are likely to go as well as the independents?
1: Yeah, the Greens will preference Labor ahead of the coalition. We know that much is, is sure. That's what happens every election. Um, but there's a lot of individual races to be sorted out. So the question about the Greens is whether they'll preference the teal independents, for example, uh, ahead of Labor in some of those interesting races. Um, the declaration of the candidates only happened last week. Also, early voting starts on that Monday, the 9th of May.
0: Also, just to quickly clarify here, preference deals talked about like this only go so far as parties or candidates putting suggestions on how to vote cards. At the end of the day, it's your vote and your ordering of numbers that give the preferences to where your vote flows. But still, there will be a lot of action on that front in the coming week. May 9 isn't a deadline for preference deals. There's still time for people to get their how to vote cards out, but it's just a good thing that they're getting done. So watch this space. Brian would like to know more about the Senate candidates, given we're electing half of them. It's a half-Senate election this time around. I reckon you're going to
1: tell us to get out our tippy-typey fingers again. Yeah, exactly, and I feel for you, Brian. (laughs) My below-the-line Senate voting means that I have to put aside a bit of time to go and Google the parties and the blocks and make sure that I've got a little bit of a game plan before I go in to vote. Um, Thank goodness for the internet. I don't know how you would have done this beforehand. (laughs) And you can actually get onto their websites and access this information. Um, The major parties and the bigger minor parties have that candidate information on their website. Um, How I do it is I have a look at the Senate ballot paper, a copy of it in my state online, and then I sort of just go around the websites and work through it. It takes me about an hour and with a glass of wine in hand on a Saturday afternoon, it's really good fun before the election.
0: Oh, Claire, your idea of fun is, is very particular. <laughs> I wouldn't mock you further, but I know that you're taking participating in our democracy seriously. So best of luck to you. And that Saturday afternoon, <laughs> I don't think uh, I don't think I'll be joining you on that day. <laughs> Aside from you gearing up for your super Saturday fun of Senate selection in a couple of weeks, <laughs> what has caught your eye about the campaign this week, Claire?
1: Look, probably how Labor acquitted itself in the absence of its leader, Anthony Albanese. Mm. He was out with COVID. He's out of that now. And what I'll be keeping an eye out for on the weekend is their campaign launch. Uh, Labor has theirs in Perth tomorrow, so on Sunday. Um, The coalition is heading to Perth for their official launch the week after. Western Australia is a very popular place at the moment. How are you going? It
0: certainly is. Well, you stole my thunder a little there with Being on COVID campaign watch. So, probably for me, then that inflation number that landed this week, 5.1%, had both parties out talking economics. The real interesting thing is going to be seeing when the RBA will raise interest rates. Is it going to happen next week during the election? Is it going to happen in June, fresh for a newly elected government? I never knew I'd take such an interest in things like inflation and interest rates, but here we are. (laughs) I'm also just going to quickly plug our shortcuts episode on inflation because the cost of living is an issue for everyone, election or not. So have a listen to that one. We unpack the basics and you'll be that little bit more informed. I'll pop a link to it in your episode notes. That's another week done. I can't believe it's the halfway mark of this campaign. Time flies when you're having fun.
1: Yeah, it sure does. And this week is hugely important because it's the last full week before those early polls open. So hold on to your hat. It's getting real.
0: Thanks for joining us. Remember, if you do have any questions, shoot them through to us at hello at the squiz.com.au. Until next time.